Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On the previous episode of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, I had talked about some of my fictitious heroes of my young years. A few I didn't mention were named Bruce, Chuck, Jackie, and Clint. No, these weren't of the Lee, Norris, Chan, or Eastwood variety. In fact, they weren't even human beings. They were hamsters. Adolescent radioactive black belt ones, to be specific. The Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters was a comic book series that appeared in 1986, and the man behind them was Don Chin. Chin went on to write several comic book series, including X-Farce, which is being rebooted via a crowdfunding campaign. Chin comes back by the woodpile today to tell us about that endeavor, in addition to reliving his days as a comic book shop owner, the creation of the Black Belt Hamsters and the Unfunny X-Cons, his work in faith-based comics, and a bunch more. I guess the first obvious question would be, do you remember when you first discovered comic books? Yes, I was young, probably like kindergarten, early elementary school age. And my my parents had run a, a Chinese restaurant up here in Northern California. And so there was long hours where um, rather than staying at home, I would be at the restaurant with them. And to keep me occupied, they would buy comics and a lot of them were like the Harvey, Richie Rich comics, um, funny animal comics that were, you know, age appropriate for a, uh, a young kid. And so I kind of learned how to read, reading comic books. And then someone introduced me to Peanuts, the comic strip by Charles Schultz. And that was, uh, I really gravitated towards his work all my life. I really loved his style and humor and the warmth in his characters. Uh, and so... It was a combination of both funny animal humor comics and then comic strips like like Peanuts. And then as I got older, I started get, getting more into superheroes and things like that. Well, obviously, it made quite an effect on you because you would eventually own or at least be a co-owner of the comic book shop. Yeah, um, I really wasn't collecting so much back then, but I was just more of a voracious reader of comics, and then when I was in junior high school, a friend of mine showed me a, a comic, like a vintage uh, Batman issue, like a 12 cent comic book. And I was a Batman fan, you know, watching the TV se- series with Adam West on TV. And um, but I really wasn't into superhero comics until I saw that back issue. And his, I think his brother owned it, and he wound up selling me a few old comics and I just kind of liked holding a vintage you know 60s comic book in my hand and that kind of got the collector bug going in me and before long I had amassed a large enough collection to open a comic book store and that was in like in college. I used to work at a comic book store and just the amount of characters that came in I mean someone who should have wrote comic books about them the customers. Yeah. Well what are some of your memories of running uh, the comic book shop? You just kind of have a regular clique of guys that would come in and, you know, they hang out a lot. A lot of them were um, just kind of loners or, you know, comic book nerds. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was very rare to get a, a girl in there, 
and you know when one would come in uh everybody would just kind of you know kind of look at each other and (laughs) (laughs) what do we do (laughs) awkward yeah what do we do and if they were pretty then then you'd even be more nervous but it was a good time i just i started the comic book store out of my parents house just kind of on a whim and then before i knew it i had enough clients to actually move it into a storefront and it was there for quite a while it was called comic castle and it was um in downtown eureka california and i had a partner who came in later so between between us our collection was pretty big and we started you know we had thousands of back issues were you able to make a living at it then yeah i was able to kind of pay um you know being a college student living at home my expenses really weren't too great because I, I I decided to go to a local college so I didn't have to you know have a um, a dorm or a house or something like that so um, it was nice I mean I didn't I didn't make like a ton of money at it but it was better than working for somebody else so eventually at the same time I was doing the comic book stores when the the black belt hamsters idea took off and so when I was running the comic book store hamsters got published and then it segued into i i saw that i could do better writing and publishing comics than i could operating the store so eventually i left the store to my partner and then just went full-time into publishing comics like in the early 90s So let's talk about the, the hamsters. Okay. So that's my introduction to your work. So where did the Genesis come from? Uh, of course, it's a parody, I guess. Most people say it's a parody of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which, of course, a lot of people point out was already a parody of sorts. Right. So how did it come about? Well, because I owned the store, I kept a, you know, a, a beat on what was hot in comics. And so uh, I kind of started hearing through like the comic comic book buyer's guide and you know really didn't have the internet back then it was you know kind of in its in its beginning stages so we didn't have websites and stuff but just all the different print publications i was reading about the industry said yeah there's this new independent comic book called the teenage mutant ninja turtles and obviously when you hear that for the first time you you go what the heck could that be and then you see them and you can see it's kind of crude but it's got this energy to it and it looks a little bit undergroundy and then you learn more about eastman and laird that they're a couple young guys from the east coast and this is their comic book that they started ground level and now they can't keep them in stock because they're selling like hotcakes and they're reprinting, you know, the first issues. And uh, so I started getting the the turtles in my store and I would sell out of them really quickly. And I said, wow, this is amazing that these two young guys are kind of just doing this book on their own. I don't think anybody really had up to that point had that kind of success independently. Maybe ElfQuest might have been like a creator owned title that was kind of caught on with people, but the turtles was like a totally new phenomenon that people hadn't seen. And, you know, it was black and white, but it was still, it had that kind of Frank Miller, uh, you know, action to it. And it was such a preposterous concept, but yet it, it all worked. You know, it was a fun, a fun read. I just thought 
you know, I had been trying to get into comics for a while and just kind of self-publishing up to that point. And the only other thing I ever had published professionally before the hamsters was um, I did some work for a satire magazine called Cracked, which was kind of like a mad magazine. Yes, I remember. Yeah, newsstand publication. So in 1983, I finally got some of my submissions printed in Cracked, but it wasn't a regular gig. And I didn't have any cred with anybody else to, you know, to work for Marvel or DC. I was still pretty young. Like at 1986, I would have been like about 20, 24 years old. So I was just in college doodling and I was getting close to being done with my college four-year degree. And I was in a class and I just thought adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters and I doodled a couple of, you know, funky looking hamsters. And I, I thought, well, I wonder if anyone would buy a comic book <laughs> that was that was like a, a spoof of the turtles. And that was the name I came up with. And so I took it to my friend Parsonovich, who was a much better artist than I was. And I knew him from going to high school with him. And he was actually going to college as well. <clears throat> and we decided to just go ahead and do a story based on you know, this wild hamsters idea. I didn't know any publishers other than Eclipse Comics, which was uh, kind of a, a growing independent comic book publisher in the 80s. And they were in Northern California as well, Spun. So I had met them through conventions and they seemed kind of more down to earth than, you know, the suit and tie Marvel people. Mm-hmm. And so I I pitched them the hamsters idea and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll give it a shot. And they did. And it sold like over 50,000 copies the first issue, which was really good. I mean, that was better than probably a lot of their, even their color, their color books by people that, by people that people knew, let alone a couple of, you know, young guys from Humboldt County, which me and Parsonovich were. So that's kind of how the hamsters got started and it kind of developed its own cult following. You know, we did about, 20 issues of the hamsters with eclipse 3d issues one shots and so forth and then but most people kind of know me from the hamsters i think but i've done a lot of other sure. satire yeah one thing i wanted to say about the ninja turtles was uh it was quite a bit more edgy like i think people now associate it with the really really cartoonish it's, it's almost unwatchable to me but back then it was it was i won't say quite literature but it was it was closer to that than what you see today. And um, I, I didn't realize that the hamsters sold as well as you just told me because, um, you know, I discovered it through a friend. You just think like you're the only two people in the world that know about it, especially when you live in the you know Midwest. You go to the comic book store and, you know, it's, it's a lot of times it's not cool. It's not Spider-Man or something like that. But that, that's great to hear that you guys did so well with it. When did you find out about them? How old were you? I must have been a freshman in high school. I'll tell you the story. I would walk home. I walked about a mile home. There was this kid that also walked home about the same way, and he lived in this trailer park behind uh, a nursing home, which my dad was the sometimes repairman for. And uh, one day he just started talking to me. Not only did he introduce me the the hamsters, but also Dungeons and Dragons and all of those TSR games. There was a, there was a whole slew of them and uh, some music and stuff. He really I don't know how this kid. His mom was a single mom, you know, was kind of living in a rough area. But somehow he had discovered this. It was probably his escape, I imagine. So anyway, I, I'll always be grateful to him for 
Um, so he had he had a copy of the hamsters that he showed you. Oh yeah, and I so then I would had to drive to the city, and this was in Evansville, Indiana, uh, the closest city, and there was a little place called the Book Broker. Uh, and they sold all kinds of stuff. And it was one of those places where all the employees were chain smoking. So, you know, you had to go in about as quick as you could, grab what you could and get out without having to smell like a chimney. Anyway, they had some. I think the first one I ever bought was the 3D one, which yeah, I think it might have been a used copy. So it didn't have the glasses. <laughs> so I'm sitting, there, I'm sitting there crossing my eyes trying to figure out what this, you know, thing looked at. <laughs> Eventually, I would get a pair of uh, glasses to read it. But, but I was going to say, you know, to, to put something out in 3D, that's quite a chore. First of all, whose idea was that? And um, was that expensive? I wasn't the one paying for the 3D separations or the artists at that time because Eclipse was my publisher. They kind of handled all the um, expenses. So I would turn in a script mm -hmm. and then they would put an art team together and then they'd send it off to the um, – 3D separator, and that at that time the premier 3D guy was Ray Zone, who's since passed away. But he did, I think, 3D Three Stooges was like the very first Eclipse 3D book that they did, and it sold really well. Yeah, we did the first issue, and it was drawn by Ty Templeton. That's actually probably one of my favorite hamster stories was the one that he did it was a one shot where the hamsters go into the world of um of wrestling i just like the way he drew them because the hamsters have had various looks over the sure. years from parsonovich who kind of did a, a a strange uh mobius uh type of take on the hamsters very underground and very uh a lot of cross hatching and detailed and then because Parsonovich couldn't keep up the pressures of a regular ongoing title, he had to basically say, you know, I need to stop and you need to find somebody else to do it. So Sam Keith happened to be available young in his career. And so I had met him through probably conventions in Northern California. And he was looking for a penciling job because he had just been inking um, a guy named Matt Wagner. And so... Sam did about four issues, and then after that, he actually got hired to work for DC Comics with uh, Neil Gaiman, and oh, wow. he and Mike Dragenberg, who actually worked on Hamsters as well, uh, created the Sandman character. Oh my goodness, wow. Yeah, so those, those two guys worked with me, and then they went to work for Neil Gaiman, and that kind of launched their careers, I think, um, for them. So Eclipse was pretty supportive of, did they ever try to shape the stories or let you do what you wanted? Yeah, a lot of freedom there, which I love because, you know, I had an editor, but for the most part, they really didn't bring the hammer down on oh. me. I mean, they were, very, they were very liberal in <laughs> the way that they let me do it. I mean, there was hardly any editorial changes in what I I brought to the table. Mm -hmm. It's even funny in some of the books, like in Clint, mm -hmm. which was a miniseries, uh, the editor was writing actually Kat Ironwood, who was the publisher and editor. She, she was really upset because we were behind schedule. And so on some of the pages, she was writing notes like, you guys better get your butts going on this and get it out. And we're losing sales. And we actually left that in the book. <laughs> well, they say when you break the third wall, is that how they put it? You appear in some of the comic books yourself, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Fourth, fourth wall? Is it the third or fourth? Fourth wall. I don't remember. Yeah, it's one of those walls. I don't know where I picked that up from. Uh-huh. You know, who else might have been doing that? Maybe like I think I, I've I've said in other interviews, I was really inspired by by underground comics. So I used to read like Robert Crumb. I was gonna say he he put himself all over yeah, his he comics. Put himself in a lot of comics, and maybe that's where yeah. I got the idea. But um, maybe it was just because I had a. I had a big ego. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> it would be weird. Parsonovich was, he almost looked like a, kind of like a homeless, homeless hippie. <laughs> and he'd, he'd wear a trench coat and he'd have like a hat on. Oh, he's almost like, kind of like a deadhead type of dude. Uh-huh. And I was more um, clean cut. And so we met in a cartooning class and even though we were, polar opposites in the way that we were raised we both enjoyed each other's cartoons and so he would be doing these cartoons about you know about a a stoner guy that's a superhero Uh and i'd be doing like these parodies of movies like planet of the grapes so for us to come together uh the hamsters is like this weird synthesis of me and him and it just has this weird odd mm-hmm. underground feel to it i think the first issues definitely were kind of inspired by the alternative comics of the you know the 70s and the 80s so one last question about the hamsters and we'll move on did you ever get any feedback from the guys who created the, the ninja turtles yeah we would kind of run into their crew at at conventions and their lines for you know signing books and stuff were, were just huge in the 80s and so I was a little apprehensive. I wasn't sure if I if they had they were ticked off by me, because I think if you do one issue of a parody, you know, and you're the creator of the original, you might you might say, oh, that's cute, you know, I I'll check this out. But then when you when you ride on their coattails and you're doing like an ongoing series, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't know if I was kind of treading water or not. But I kind of heard through the letter for Eastman and Laird that they actually liked it. And then I saw in some interviews later on that Kevin Eastman thought they were funny. So um, I would love to do maybe in the future a a crossover with them, but you know, we'll see. So Parody Press, when was that created and why? Um, yeah, we came along with Parody Press in the late 92. And how that happened, Spun, was that Hamsters kind of had its run with Eclipse. Mm-hmm. And then in the 91, uh, Rob Liefeld came out with X-Force for Marvel, which was a big you know, mutant title that sold millions. And every, there was a lot of buzz about that. And uh, I was still kind of running the comic book store. And so I decided that, you know, maybe I have another parody in me and I came up with X farce and that's the, you know, the book that I'm working on now, which is a remastered version of, of X farce, but X farce came out like in 92 with Eclipse and it sold, it sold really well. I think they sold like 70,000 plus copies and it was black and white. And that was the first time I ever worked with Bill Mouse, who is kind of been my partner in a lot of parodies. So 
Bill and I did XFARS, but then Eclipse started having some financial difficulties. Um, it looked like they were kind of going down as a company. So Bill and I thought, well, we can maybe we should try doing parodies on our own and not relying on Eclipse. So we put together an X-Men, another X-Men parody called X-Cons. And so that was the very first parody press book was the Unfunny X-Cons. And that was probably in late, late 92, like the same year X-Farce was released. We, we went off and did our own thing and it, you know, it sold well. We sold like 60,000 copies of the, X-Farce, I'm sorry, X-Cons mm-hmm. book. And that kind of paved the way for us to do more more parodies. So uh, the king of musical parodies, especially during the 80s, you know, Weird Al Yankovic, I've heard him sometimes, or people talk about like, there was actually more to the guy than just, you know, silly songs, but sometimes you get pigeonholed into that. Was there some serious things that you wanted to do, but maybe because you were just known for parody that, that th- those doors were never open? Yeah, actually with Eclipse, I did a book called uh, Enchanter, which was a, a fantasy book with elves and and dragons and stuff. And that lasted three issues. And that was Mike Drigenberg. Um, he was the artist on that. And he's phenomenal. I mean, if you looked at his work, and he was only like 19 years old, it looked like a young, almost like a young Bernie Wrightson was drawing it. So I got... I was blessed to work with him early in his career. We got to the fourth issue and Mike was also one of those guys that was kind of slow and not unable to kind of keep deadlines. So um, long story short, the third issue with Eclipse was the last one. And then that kind of coincided with Sam and the hamsters run ending. So Sam, Sam and Mike, after they were done working with me, that's when, uh, DC found them and offered them Samia. So they both kind of left the projects I was working on with them, and then they got hired to work with uh, with Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I did try to do serious stuff, and it was well it was well received. I think people were kind of surprised that I had um, a more serious side, and I've done some like a little novella by with Zan Intergalactic Ninja that was um, actually prose. It wasn't it wasn't a comic book. Um, but I think I feel more comfortable doing humor, but I can I can do both. Mm-hmm. Is Enchanter something you ever want to revisit? Because I assume that you have big plans for it. Yeah, my wife and I actually had talked about that because I've seen the artwork still holds up, you know, even though it was done in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So my goal would probably be to, you know, maybe try to do a crowdfunded Enchanter, but bring it back with color. We never finished the the full eight issue run. So whether I would, you know, have somebody else take, take it on and finish that or, or think of something to kind of bring it to a, uh, a sensible resolution. I'm, I'm still kind of playing with that, but that's, that's a project. I think if people saw it today and it was colored, would they would probably say that's something I'd like to, I'd like to buy. Uh, back to X-Farce and X-Cons, again, kind of like the same question about the hamsters and the Ninja Turtles. Uh, did you ever get any feedback from the Marvel, the X-Men people? You know, not, not so much. We, we kind of wanted to stay under the radar. You know, we didn't want to get sued. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, parodies are protected 
uh, under law. But however, I think you're entitled to do it like once. Mm. But if you start to kind of milk it and and they could have they could have a reason to say, you know, cease and desist. So in all of our career of doing parodies, you know, we parodied DC, Marvel, Image, uh, the Turtles. You know, there was no no stone left unturned that we wouldn't we wouldn't parody. The first cease and desist that we ever got was from Marvel, and it was because they saw us uh, soliciting like a a third uh, Punisher spoof. We did one called Pummeler, and then we did one called Pummeler two thousand ninety nine dollars because they were coming out with Punisher two thousand ninety nine, and then we had another one where it was like Pummeler versus Sergeant USA, which was our Captain America uh, spoof idea. And I think once they saw that we were going to do a third one, their legal team said, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, never any litigation or anything like that. But I think they, they were kind of tired of us making fun of their, their Punisher guy. So you've um, resurrected the X-Farce, and talk about how that came about. Well, I had been kind of jumping online and seeing what creators were doing and how the market was, because I had been out of comics for like 13 years, and um, my regular job is as a real estate broker, and I've always wanted to get back into it creatively, but I just didn't know what when and what time and what what title would work back in the 90s when i was publishing and even the last project that we did which was 2007 the way that you would normally market your comics uh you would solicit it through a distributor and then a distributor would send out a catalog to the comic book stores and previews magazine is probably what most people are familiar with and that's through diamond distribution so diamond Diamond acts as kind of the central hub for all the comic book stores for distribution. And so you have to get your project greenlighted by Diamond before they'll solicit it to the comic book stores. And um, it was getting harder and harder. I had heard through different independent publishers that they were being more stringent about what they were going to solicit, that you'd have to show that you had a majority of the book already done, et cetera, et cetera. So, 2007 was the last book that we did under Parody Press with Bill Mouse, and that was a book called called Heroes, which was a parody of that NBC show Heroes. Uh-huh. And you know, we probably sold seven or eight thousand copies of that parody, which to me, you know, really to to kind of make money on a parody, you normally have to sell you know ten thousand or up. So I could kind of see just based on that book that. Uh, the market as it was like in the 90s. So now everybody is kind of doing what's called crowdfunding. And that's where you put your book on something like Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And instead of having it distributed the old fashioned way to comic book stores, you're more so dealing with the consumer directly. And so a lot of creators are able to do lower print runs and still make, um, some money from their books. Whereas the old fashioned way, if I had a low print run and I was going through diamond, I'm only making like, you know, 40, 
40 cents on the dollar because after diamond takes their cut right. and the retailer takes their cut, uh, you, you don't make, you know, if you sell a book for 250, you're not making 250, right. you're making, uh, you know, a small percentage of that. So economically I thought, you know, I don't think if I went through diamond again in 2020, I would do much better than I was in 2007. But I see a lot of creators from my generation doing this crowdfunding thing and they're some of these creators are making uh you know a hundred thousand dollars on a campaign or even you know half a million if you're you know really good and so i just thought well why don't we why don't we bring back a comic that's kind of low risk that might have some name recognition mm-hmm. so that was my idea was to bring back x farce so we've got 30 pages of of old material that's never been colored in it, and then another 18 pages of new material. So it's it's seven separate stories in a 48-page book, and none of it was in color. So it's uh, kind of a bigger undertaking for us because under Parody Press, we really didn't do much color, and now that seems to be what people like to see is you know digital digital color. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why we did that, and the reason why I didn't bring back the hamsters which everybody would love to probably see uh, as a crowdfund is because I don't own the rights anymore. So it's owned by Dynamite uh, Entertainment now. And so th- it's kind of their their call on whether they want to do a new hamsters book. Have they ever talked about uh, resurrecting it? Yeah, they did a, a mini series like in 2008. And I was just kind of like a, uh, I didn't write it. I was just kind of asked to oversee this new creative team and it was okay. It was color. Um, their artwork and production value was really, really good, but it wouldn't be like what I would have brought back. I would have been, I think a little more, probably a little more politically incorrect. (laughs) So what happened next, we were supposed to do a crossover, um, start on a crossover last year with a character called Cyberfrog. And Cyberfog was a character in the 90s that was kind of a funny animal with powers. And Cyberfrog now is probably like the very top um, crowdfunded creation by, by a guy named Ethan Van Skyver. So Cyberfrog got a lot of momentum through the crowdfunding platform last year. And I think his last campaign for Cyberfrog, I think the current campaign is almost up to like $1.3 million My goodness. in crowdfunding. Yeah, he's got like action figures and and all sorts of, you know, extra stuff if, if you back his campaign. So I was very excited to possibly do a Hamster's Cyberfrog book and Dynamite asked me to write a 40-page story and I, and I did. And so um, it was just starting to get off the ground last year. But unfortunately, there was a disagreement between Ethan and the publisher at Dynamite that they, they they haven't reconciled to this day. So unfortunately, it's kind of in the comic book limbo right now. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe they'll mend you know, the relationship and it'll see the light of day someday. But I was really excited for the story because it was I felt like I was really inspired to write that. I had a lot of ideas that I hadn't been able to do in like over 10 years that I got to put down on paper.
least on your Twitter, you've been pretty outspoken about your faith uh, and Christianity, uh, a little bit about politics as well. How long have you been a Christian? I was a Christian since uh, the early 70s when I got uh, saved at a, a Pentecostal uh, youth camp. Mm-hmm. And so from there, um, you know, I've had my ups and downs, but I have a really, a really great wife who is um, um, amazing, and her name is Laura. And um, yeah, she and I, we actually met before we got married, like um, she was at a church camp, not the one that I got saved at, but more like when I was in high school. And I was at the same church camp, but we never really interacted at that at that time when we were in high school. But she came into my store that I was running, which wasn't a comic book store. I, was, I went into computer sales and we had a, a computer store. And so Laura came in and I said, I she looks really familiar and her best friend actually went to high school with me in a different nearby town. So she didn't go to high school with me. She just happened to be the same age as I was at at the time that we were at this camp. But, um, I saw her and I was immediately smitten and I went up to her and I said, you look really familiar. And then lo and behold, it's because we were in this church, this church camp, um, a few years ago before that. So yeah, we got married very quickly, like just a three month um, engagement. And we've been married since 1989. Um, So she's been really instrumental in just uh, encouraging me in my faith. And I have a lot of guys that are, uh, you know, mentors to me that and also younger guys that I like to mentor in the faith and just hope hoping that they don't make you know, the same mistakes that I did growing up. And, and, you know, that's, that's what I think is really lacking right now is discipleship and trying to encourage not just younger guys, but guys my age. So it's really important to me to get into, you know, Bible studies and, and do morning prayer times. And I, I, especially in this day and age, where there's so much negativity and just, I think a lot of spiritual warfare going on. And sure. I was thinking you know, actually the other day, my book, it, we're at like almost $2,000 in, in financial backing. And, you know, that's not setting the world on fire financially. But God said to me, you know, Don, it's not about the bottom line. I've given you this talent. And right now, with all that we've gone through in this world, I'd like you to try to go out there and be joyful and make people laugh again because everybody now is all doom and gloom and you know there's no hardly any comedies anymore everybody's just like in this funk right and so um he said just go out there and be a example try to make people laugh and so we came up with this trailer on xfarce if people want to go to xfarce.com you can look at our campaign and we came up with this really funny trailer that actually another christian guy named Ryan helped me do. He has a video production company in Iowa. So he helped us do the X-Force trailer. And we had a a vocal talent that sounds like Patrick Stewart narrate it. And my wife, Laura, actually does the vocals for the female voices in it. Yeah, I've I've gravitated towards Christian comics like in the 90s. uh, Nate Butler and I did some projects together. And Nate was at the time one of the more... um, outspoken publishers and he said 
you know, uh, Don wanted, would you consider teaching at a conference that we're, that I'm doing in the Philippines to go teach people how to do comic books for evangelical purposes? And I thought about it and I said, wow, that's a long trip, you know, all the way to the Philippines. But I just felt like, you know, that's God gave me this talent to edit and to create. So I should go and spread what I know to other people. So there was this conference in Manila, like in 1996. And um, Nate got like Carrie Gamble, who was a well-known artist for DC. He drew Superman. And then Carlos Garzon, who was an anchor for Marvel, like doing Star Wars. And myself and Nate and some other people, we basically had like a three-day seminar over in the Philippines. And all these international students came all the way from Australia to Canada to United States. So a lot of those people went off and did, you know, comic books and tracks and translating the gospel in their, in their language. So to me, that was kind of a cool thing to be associated with was the very first like Christian international Christian creators conference that, that, that Nate put on. Um, Yeah. So you know, we've tried to do things that are more spiritual. You know, we did a few parodies, like one that was actually called Parody. That was a Christian one. And we've done, we published Vortex, which was kind of like a Christian version of Spawn by a guy named Matt Martin. Unfortunately, those books, you know, I think faith-based books, other than like the Action Bible, have a hard time kind of making it into the comic book crowd but i definitely support anyone that feels like that's their passion and i just reviewed a a book called tribulation task force a couple weeks ago that that i it was a crowdfunded book and it was like a christian superhero theme um so if i see something out there that i i think looks like it's worthy of supporting then you know i will definitely back it and um, whether we're going to do more faith-based stuff in the future i'm not sure but uh, I, I definitely think that that there's a there's an audience for it, and if the creators can can do a good product, I think it'll they have a good chance of making it um, successful. So, if if people want to get in on this crowdfunding special you're doing with, with X-Farce, uh, how do they go about finding it? So the way to, to support the campaign, which is going for another 30 days, and I may, I may extend it another 30 days, is I have a URL and you just go to xfarce.com. That's X-F-A-R-C-E.com. And it'll take you right to the, the Indiegogo page where you can read all about our campaign we have the trailer right there for you to watch. And then you can see all the different artwork in progress of the book. And it shows you on the right-hand side the different options that you can buy. Like we have variant covers. We have a lunchbox uh, special box. And we have a lot of original artwork for sale as well. If you're still in a satire mood, you might check out our podcast mini-series called Legend of the Like Totally Epic Journey Quest, which was our satire of Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s. You can find those episodes hidden on the RSS feed at around 
98 of the In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast. Or just email me at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com and I'll send you the links. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 